0: G'day, humans! Something a little interesting for you this week, a little unusual. One of the most popular and most commented on episodes of my old show, We the People Live, out of the hundreds of shows that we did, was an uncomfortable conversation that I had not with a guest, but with myself. It was an uncomfortable conversation to Australians and Americans, mostly Americans but it's interesting for Australians to listen in on, about guns. I recorded in 2019, in August, and I had to look up which shooting it was in response to, because there were just so many. This one was the El Paso and Dayton mass shootings, which I'm sad to say I don't even remember. I thought it might have been the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida, or I thought I might have recorded it after the Las Vegas massacre. But no, it was after those ones, El Paso and Dayton. And now we are coming to the end of a week wherein there was another mass shooting in the United States coming off the heels of a range of shootings at those beauty parlours. And I think it's time to revisit this conversation. I won't give it any preface. I wouldn't do it exactly the same way as I did it. It's a it's an intellectual adventure into the thicket of my mind. So, without any further ado, enjoy this unusual but definitely uncomfortable conversation with myself. Today, a special episode or a not-so-special episode. Not quite sure what this is. But Something I've been wanting to do for a while, and every time there's a mass shooting in America, I think maybe I'll do it this time, and then I lose my nerve and I release whatever episode we had planned on releasing. But this time, I want to jump in. Because guns in America are something that I feel like I understand pretty well, having lived in the States for 12 years, the gun culture, in a way that foreigners don't. It's very easy for non Americans to be completely bamboozled by why America puts up with its massive stratospheric level of guns and now of mass shootings. And to foreigners, it seems like, well, why don't they just do something about it? Why do they want this situation? There are several things going on, both culturally and constitutionally and legally, that I think it'll be worth explaining to non-Americans. And similarly to Americans, I often have American friends ask me about Australia's experience because Australia's experience of completely overhauling its gun laws in the 1990s after there was a mass shooting uh, in Australia is often held up by gun control advocates or gun safety proponents as they should more rightly be called because I don't think it's I don't think control is the right word gun safety proponents in the United States as being something that they would want to emulate and is is parodied by the National Rifle Association and other conservative groups in the United States pro gun groups as being a catastrophic failure that has left Australians dangerously unarmed so I've been thinking for a while about speaking with someone who is fairly across the Australian experience and also fairly across the American experience. And as I was driving along recently, I thought, well, what about me? What about moi? Who better to speak with? Well, actually, there are lots of people who'd be better to speak with than me. But it won't have quite the punch as if I just try to articulate... My point of view, which I think is hopefully unbiased on this issue i'm'm not i I'm, cra- I'm not someone who believes that, like Piers Morgan seems to, that all Americans would have to do would be to get up one morning and decide to emulate Australia's policy experience or ban all guns, and that that would be feasible. Um, on the other hand, I'm not somebody who thinks that the current that the status quo is tenable, or that America can survive like this or should want to survive like this, this repeated carnage at schools and movie theatres, just being awash with guns and awash with the violence caused by guns, and awash with the fear and consternation that comes from knowing that you live in a society where this could happen to you at any time, even if it's an irrational fear and even if it is not as big a problem as people say. A lot of conservatives say, look, we focus on all of these mass shootings because it's telegenic to see images of school children running out of school and, and cowering in fear. But in reality, the problem, the scourge of guns is an inner city problem. It's largely an African-American problem and a Latino problem. It's a gang problem. And it's a problem of poverty and violence. That, those are the, if you actually care about the impact of guns on American society, the proportion of people who get assassinated by some crazed 19-year-old kid in a school is just vanishingly small. That is not the gun problem. The gun problem is a handgun problem among drug gangs and black youths. That's an argument that has some currency. Because if you're just looking at numbers, it's true. The vast proportion of Americans who are killed by guns are African Americans and people who are involved in gangs. It's very it's it, the the rate of of gun homicide between races is low in America. It's just not the case that people are being mown down by walking along the street. So I have some sympathy for the claim that mass shootings aren't what we should be focusing on. If the only metric by which you're you're determining, What's bad about guns is the, is the body count. If you're just counting up piles of dead Americans, then it's true that mass shootings aren't the biggest problem. But if you care about what happens to a culture's head, about what it's like to grow up in a place, about the intangible aspects of human existence, then events like what has just happened, and before that the Las Vegas shooting, people being plucked off, mown down by a madman with effectively a machine gun, a semi-automatic, a legal semi-automatic weapon that had been amended with a legal what's called a bump stock to basically hold the trigger down and release it so fast that it turns into effectively a military-style machine gun. That that is happening on America's streets does something to a country and certainly does something to my heart and my soul. It's certainly made me more callous. Has it made you more callous? Do you even really care anymore? When these events happen? I'm ashamed to say increasingly I don't. Increasingly I just feel weary and like, you know what, you you lie in the bed you make. A series of communal decisions have been made by the American people over the course of years and decades that have obviously and predictably led to a scenario in which this is a routine fact of life. It makes me sad to even think about what that has done to my own character, that I can feel that way. But I'd be surprised if a little corner of you doesn't sort of feel that way too. You just get compassion fatigue after a while and frustration. Frustration towards a nation that refuses to do anything about this. So let's talk about specifics. Enough waffling. America's firearm homicide rate is 25 times the average of other rich countries. Its suicide rate is eight times higher than other countries. Now, some people, even friends of mine, who are ostensibly sensible on guns, will say, look, it's not just guns. That is a a portion of this. But Americans are violent. We are a violent people. Or we are more racially divided than other countries. Or this is a mental health issue. This is about mental health. These people are crazy. Of course crazy people are going to do stupid things. Let's take each of those points individually. Is America actually more violent Well, what we know is that Americans make up about 4.5% of the global population and they own 42% of the world's guns. All right? 4.4% of the population of the world and they own 42% of the world's guns. Between the mid 60s and the past few years, over that half century, 31% of the gunmen in mass shootings in the world were Americans. Almost a third. Do you think that Americans are responsible for almost a third third of the world's crime? No. Americans are responsible for the same share of the world's crime as their population represents. They're not more criminal. Adjusted for population, the only country that has a higher rate of mass shootings, and we're only looking here in this particular study, uh, this was a study out of the University of Alabama in 2015, uh the the only they're only looking at countries that have more than ten million people because you can have tiny little outliers if you include countries like Monaco or you know little fly speck nations so of countries with more than ten million people, the only country that has a higher rate of mass shootings is Yemen. Yemen has the world's second highest rate of gun ownership. The highest rate of gun ownership surprise surprise is the United States so good on the United States. For having more guns per capita than Yemen, but killing yourselves at a lower rate than Yemenis do. Globally, a country's rate of gun ownership is directly correlated to the odds that it'll experience a mass shooting. And that holds, that correlation holds even if you exclude the United States. So to people who think that there's something unique about the United States, that it might be unusually violent, or it's because of racial divisions, or it's because of the lack of of proper mental mental care under a healthcare system that is more inequitable than in, in other developed countries, even if you exclude the United States, there is still a strong correlation between a country's rate of gun ownership and its number of mass shootings. And what about these background crime rates? There isn't a difference really between the amount of violent crime in the United States and the amount of violent crime in other developed countries. It's a little bit higher, but not a lot. What is a lot higher is the number of times those criminal events lead to someone being killed. Here's a statistic for you. A New Yorker is just as likely to be robbed as a Londoner, but the New Yorker is 54 times more likely to be killed in the process. 54 times more likely to die in a robbery that they have the same likelihood of encountering as someone in London. And the discrepancy, this is according to a study at the University of California, Berkeley in 1999, a landmark study, the the discrepancy can be entirely explained by the difference in the use of guns. More gun ownership corresponds with more gun murders across virtually every single axis, among developed countries, among American states, among American towns and cities, and when you control for crime rates. And when you look at 10 countries there's an analysis of 130 different studies from 10 different countries uh, gun control legislation tends to reduce the number of gun murders I mean this sounds obvious doesn't it? it's amazing that we even need to say this, when there are fewer guns fewer people die at the hands of guns ah but, gun proponents might say crazy people will just find other ways to do bad things if they're not going to use a gun they'll use a knife, if they can't use a knife they'll use a hammer if you really really want to kill somebody you will find a way to kill somebody yes, what would the Las Vegas shooter have done to kill those scores of people? I guess you could say he might have been able to get some kind of a bomb. If you're that dedicated, maybe you would. But the statistics show that when you make it much, much easier to kill people, more people die. Look at that fact that a New Yorker is 55 times more likely to be killed in a robbery than a Londoner is. Here are some numbers. Japan has a third the population of the United States. In 2013, there were 13 gun deaths in Japan. 13. In America, there were 11,208 homicides and more than 21,000 suicides and more than 500 deaths, accidental gun deaths. So an American is about 300 times more likely to die by, by, at the hands of a gun by homicide or accident, this is excluding suicide, than a Japanese person is. Now, America's gun ownership rate is 150 times as high as Japan's, so the gap between the 150 times higher gun ownership rate and the 300 times higher gun homicide or accident rate does show that there's something else going on. So bravo to you if you're one of the people who say, it's not just about guns. No, no. It's about all kinds of other things. Yeah, okay. the all kinds of other things increases twofold... The relationship between the number of guns and the number of gun homicides and accidents, but the number of guns increases 150-fold the number. So if you were going to go for the low hanging fruit, if you're going to go for the simplest option, then instead of banging on about mental health and the uniquely violent nature of Americans and the uniquely fractious nature of American race relations, you would just go for the easiest possible thing, which is extremely powerful weapons in the hands of almost anyone who wants to get them. So let's talk about Australia. In 1996, in April, a 28-year-old guy had lunch at a cafe in Tasmania at a a tourist site, a a historic kind of penal colony called Port Arthur. He finished his meal, he returned his tray, he took a semi-automatic rifle from his bag and killed 35 people, and wounded 23 more. By far the worst mass shooting in Australian history. So the Conservatives were actually in power in Australia at the time. Can you imagine a Republican government in the States doing what the Conservative Party in Australia did, to its credit, which was to ban automatic and semi-automatic weapons? And that's what everyone focuses on, right? The ban. But it's actually the smallest component. Would you be surprised to note or to know that right now there are more guns in Australia than there were before the ban? It's true. It's not about the ban. It's about the way the ban was introduced and the regulations that were part of it. It established a national firearms registry. I can already hear the NRA quaking in its boots with the idea of the government having a registry for your firearms it implemented a waiting period for gun purchases. So you, when you apply to get a gun, there's a 28-day wait. And then there was the gun buyback. A mandatory gun buyback, 600,000 guns were bought back. They were, the government paid for them. Uh, it cost half a billion dollars, and they implemented a special temporary tax to fund the money that they were going to give to gun owners in the buyback. Now, I hear a lot of Americans say buybacks don't work. New York City, has had a buyback, they occasionally implement a voluntary buyback and you see the mayor get up and the governor and they say, we've got this number of guns, we've taken them off the streets. That's a voluntary buyback. What on earth is the point of a voluntary gun buyback? I'm sorry to sound totalitarian and dictatorial, but you've got to force the fuckers to give up their guns, otherwise they're not going to give them up. The only people who are going to give them up are the people who don't want them and have no use for them. No point in buying guns, in mean, paying people to give you guns that they're happy to part with. You want to get the guns that people aren't happy to part with. Let's talk about the registry. I recently bought a new car. The moment I paid the private... It wasn't a new car, sorry, it was a second-hand car, so it was already owned by somebody else. The moment, The moment I paid him the money for the car he immediately had an incentive to take himself off the car insurance because he knows that if I have an accident, even just driving out on my way home from having bought the car, and his name is on the insurance, then even if he wasn't driving, he's going to lose his no-claim bonus and his insurance is going to be more expensive thereafter. In other words, he's basically responsible for what that car does when he's on the insurance docket, when he's on the registration. So there's a strong incentive for him to inform the authorities as soon as that car changes possession. That's basically the incentive that was implemented by the Australian government in 1996. What it said was, you are now responsible for your guns. Believe it or not, in the States, you're not. In the States, if someone finds a gun at the, at the scene of a crime and they look up who owns the gun and you were the one who bought the gun and you went through all of the proper processes, then you can just say, well, yeah, but it got stolen. When did it get stolen? I don't know. Why didn't you report it's theft to the police? Oh, didn't feel like it. And that's fine. That's totally fine in the States. So when conservatives say, they're going to take our guns, they're coming for our guns, we're going to keep our guns. No, before we come for the guns, the first thing we might like to do is just know who's got guns and implement a rule that says that you are responsible for your gun. That doesn't mean that we're going to assume that you did the murder. What it means is we're going to give you a fine for having been reckless enough to let the gun out of your sight. And you know one other consequence of the Australian laws that were introduced in 1996? Gun theft dropped by half. Because now that people knew, now that gun owners knew they had to be responsible for what happened to their gun and that, the, and that law enforcement was going to knock on the door if their gun was lost or stolen, they locked up their guns. Another reform was that you needed to prove a reason. You needed to prove that you wanted it for hunting or shooting or that you were a gun collector. That's not very hard to prove. Pretty much everybody who owns a gun presumably should be able to prove that they they want it for hunting or shooting or for collecting. Self-defence was no longer a justification for having a gun. In civilised societies, we outsource that to the police. I'm sorry if you live in the middle of the woods and you don't have faith that the police are going to get to you in time if a mass murderer comes lurking around your property, your remote farm. But you know what? If you live on a remote farm, then you need a gun for hunting and shooting or collecting. You don't need a gun if you're in a large apartment block right around the corner from a police station in a downtown area. So that was one reform. Then secondly, you need to, you need to license the gun. You need to register the gun. I mean, we've for God's sake, we register cars, we register boats, we register dogs. You can't register guns. I mean, the fear in the States is that if you once you register them, then the gov- government's going to come and take them. The government hasn't come and taken your car. The government hasn't come and taken your dog or your boat. Can you not see that there is an upside to registering guns short of full government confiscation? How would they even do it under the Second Amendment? And we'll get to the Second Amendment in just a moment. I just want to make the point that there are all kinds of things that Australia did short of the gun buyback and short of the gun ban that were crucial in yielding the results that those reforms in the the, the 1990s had and which America would be able to emulate. Here are two really important components. It became against the law to privately sell a gun. You had to go through a dealer, and if you sold it privately, you needed to have the cops witness it. So it's all very well if you want to sell me a gun where we're neighbors, that's fine. But you've got to go down to a local police station and say, Mate, can you just sign this thing that, sh- that says that you've, you've witnessed that this actually ha- took place? That means that there's always a paper trail of exactly who's got what gun where and it's not to confiscate the gun. It's so that people take responsibility for their own firearms because they're deadly weapons. It's so that the nation isn't just awash mysteriously in a way that nobody understands with high-powered military-style death machines. So you can go to the police and you can have the the private sale witnessed or you can sell it to a dealer and the dealer can sell it to your mate. But you can't do what currently happens in the States, which is get around the background checks, which are already incredibly loose. I mean, the background checks are, it's voluntary for states to contribute the information about their background checks. So there's no reason for conservative Republican states to even bother participating in the background checks scheme and submitting the relevant information to the FBI because they don't frankly care. And more than three-quarters of gun criminals didn't even get their guns via, via background checks. They were able to get them through what's called the, the gun show loophole, which basically means that you can give a gun to anybody and there doesn't have to be any real record of it in the States. Why not just change that? Why do we keep talking about banning guns? Why do we keep talking? Why does the right keep saying that they're coming for your guns? We're not coming for the guns. There are so many things that we could do that would change a little bit, just a little bit. And the other second component that I thought was interesting when I was digging into this about the Australian reforms was that it made it a crime not to report the loss or theft of a gun. It's, in, it's mandatory now in Australia to report the loss or theft of a gun. It doesn't mean that you're going to be punished for it. It's totally fine to lose something. It's totally fine to have your house broken into and your gun gets stolen. But that has to be on the register. We have to know. And simply in knowing... Simply in understanding the pattern of gun ownership in Australia, law enforcement is so much better able to know who's got guns and to then keep them out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. So, background checks. Half of gun criminals, this is according to a study in the United States, half of gun criminals would have passed their background check if they'd had them. They weren't bad guys before they did something bad with a gun. They weren't on mental health regist- registries. They weren't didn't have criminal records. The Las Vegas mass shooter would have passed a psychology exam. There's not, there was nothing obviously wrong with him. Not to mention the fact that two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides. You're not going to prevent suicides by better background checks. So... What are we concluding here? Small voluntary gun buybacks like the one that the ones that American cities sometimes implement don't work. It has to be a widespread mandatory gun buyback. Australia's was the biggest gun buyback ever anywhere in the world. 640,000 weapons in 12 months. What ended up happening? Okay, let's get to the facts about this. Well, the risk of dying by gunshot dropped by more than a half. That's including suicide and accidents. Australia's gun death rate is one-tenth the United States. In the 18 years prior to the changes in the law, there were 13 mass shootings in Australia. That's defined in Australia as, a, as an incident in which a gunman killed five or more people other than himself. That's actually a higher casualty count than is usually applied in the United States for tallying mass shootings. So even using the higher bar, it was 13 mass shootings in the 18 years prior. And you know, since the Port Arthur massacre, touching lots of wood, zero. Not a single one. In the 20 years after the laws came into effect in 1996, gun-related homicides dropped by 59% gun-related suicides by 65%. Just stop thinking about these numbers and think about what this means in terms of lives. That's two-thirds of the people who would otherwise have shot themselves in the head to end their lives who didn't. And even if you're crazy enough to think that the ease with which guns enable people to kill other people doesn't make them more likely to do so, and that a person who wants to kill someone will always find a way. They're going to, If they don't use a gun, then they're going to use a knife. If they don't use a knife, then they're going to use a baseball bat. Even if you're stupid enough to think that the simplicity of pulling a trigger doesn't make it more likely that someone's going to be able to inflict serious injury than them having to hunt the person down with a baseball bat and smash their skull in, think about suicide. Because there it really is obvious that a person who's drunk or high or who's incredibly depressed, who's bawling their eyes out in the darkest moment of their entire lives, could make a decision with a gun that they simply wouldn't do if they were trying to kill themselves with a stapler. It's too grisly. And speaking of mental health, this is the talking point that you hear more often than anything else on Fox News and from the NRA and from Republicans who don't want to see any changes whatsoever to gun safety laws. That we need to worry about mental health. These are the same people who cut investments in public health, who cut investments in mental health. Here's an article from NBC, 15th of February, 2018. The headline, Trump Signs Bill Revoking Obama-Era Gun Checks for People with Mental Illnesses. President Trump quietly signed a bill into law on Tuesday, that's this Tuesday, rolling back an Obama-era regulation that made it harder for people with mental illnesses to purchase a gun. The rule, which was finalised in December, added people receiving Social Security checks for mental illnesses and people deemed unfit to handle their own financial affairs to the National Background Check database. Had the rule fully taken effect, it would have added about 75,000 names to that database. So, at the moment... If you're getting a social security check for mental illness, you can buy a gun. If you've been deemed unfit to handle your own financial affairs, you can buy a gun. This tiny tweak, which would have added people who obviously have a mental illness because they're receiving a social security check for it, and if they don't have a mental illness, then that's social security fraud, so fuck them, they don't get their gun, they can choose one or the other. Either you get to defraud social security or you get to have a gun. But no, the Republicans want you to be able to do both. You can get your social security check for mental illness and you can also buy a gun. So that regulation, which was implemented after the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, has been revoked by President Trump. Let's also just note that if this really was a problem of mental health, then you're basically claiming that Americans are uniquely insane. I mean, if you have 25 times the number of gun homicides as the average in the developed world, are you saying that you're 25 times crazier? Because that's a pretty fucking damning indictment of your own country. In my experience, Americans aren't more crazy. They're a little more odd in some ways, but hey, so are Aussies. And the other final point that I'd make about mental health is it stigmatises people with mental illnesses. To claim that the reason why America has this problem, this recurring catastrophe of gun massacres is because of the mentally ill. And quite apart from anything else, when we talk about making sure that mentally ill people don't have access to guns, I'm not sure if your claim is that there is a Second Amendment constitutional right to bear arms, why, for example, schizophrenic people don't have constitutional rights. Imagine arguing that schizophrenic people shouldn't have the the First Amendment shouldn't apply to them, so they shouldn't be allowed to freely speak their mind because they're mentally ill. That wouldn't pass muster. How come you can say that the Second Amendment doesn't apply to them and they don't have the right to bear arms if, as you as you claim, the Second Amendment is absolute? And this is where we really start getting into the juicy stuff. Let's talk about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment says this. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What's the first thing you notice about that statement? No, it's not the well-regulated militia. I'm getting to that. It's not even grammatical. I mean, quite apart from anything else, people who think that the US Constitution is flawless and the most brilliantly devised document ever handed down to man by Moses from a burning bush... It's not a grammatical sentence. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's missing a verb. Anyway, we take their point. Their point would seem to be, unless you're an ideologue, unless you're intentionally misunderstanding it, would would seem to be that you want to have militias, you want to make sure they're well-regulated, but those militias are going to be fundamental to maintaining freedom in this state, both from aggressors abroad and, and within, therefore people need to keep and bear arms. This has become the sentence on which all of this carnage and mayhem is predicated, is justified. All the the lives ruined, the bullets tearing through flesh, the little children lying in pools of blood, is all because of this sentence or rather because of the Supreme Court's interpretation of this sentence. To Americans who say, well, it's in the Constitution, there's not a lot you can do about it, fuck that. What are you talking about? You can interpret the Constitution a million ways. If the Supreme Court can find a right for me and my gay husband to get married in the constitution which was the furthest thing from the founding fathers minds if they can find a right to privacy which allows a woman to get an abortion in the constitution even though there's nothing about abortions in the constitution and nothing about privacy in the constitution then they can find a fucking way to interpret the second amendment in such a way that you can't buy that a a mentally handicapped person can't buy a semi-automatic weapon the Supreme Court's already said time and time again, including in the Heller decision, which is the one that fundamentally changed the game for gun ownership in the United States. And by the way, it was only in 2008. If you think this goes back a long way, well, guns are a long honoured part of American, the American tradition. Yes, they are culturally, but the constitutional right was only invented by the Supreme Court in 2008. That was when the Supreme Court heard a challenge to a decades-old ban in Washington, D.C. on handgun possession. Washington, D.C. had, for decades, not allowed you to own handguns. And any firearm that you had in the home had to be stored unloaded and it either had to be disassembled or bound by a locking device. That was the law of the land in Washington, D.C. And it was only when gun, I mean, gun proponents became particularly cocky and the NRA was essentially co-opted in the 1970s by radical reactionary libertarians who became very bullish and started pushing this stuff up through the courts, that the, second, the Supreme Court found that for the first time in 70 years there was an individual right to possess firearms. In other words, that that whole bit about the well-regulated militia didn't exist. They didn't, just did not think that that was relevant to the Second Amendment. And that was a radical departure from what the Supreme Court had previously held. So don't give me this like it's a long, 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 long history of American jurisprudence. It's not. It's a decade old. Less than a decade old. But one thing that even the conservatives, even Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court said, was that the Second Amendment should not be understood as conferring, quote, a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. The court gave examples of laws that it would consider presumptively lawful, such as A, prohibiting firearm possession by felons and by the mentally ill, B, forbidding firearm possession in sensitive places like schools and government buildings, and C, putting conditions on the commercial sale of firearms. So the Supreme Court itself has said, listen, guys, don't take the Second Amendment to be absolute. Of course, it has to be interpreted sensibly. If it has to be interpreted sensibly, then just interpret the fucking line sensibly. This is not about the Second Amendment being a great impediment to common sense gun safety laws in America. I mean, Bill Clinton banned semi-automatic weapons. It has already been done in America. And then George W. Bush revoked the ban. You know, what is an arm? Let's look at the What are arms? A well regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What's what are arms? Do you think nuclear weapons are arms? If they're not arms, what are they? Are rocket propelled grenades arms? Are bazookas arms? This makes no sense. If the Supreme if the if the Second Amendment is absolute, if the Second Amendment is the reason why, and I I gee, I hate it when people say, well I'm a Second Amendment, but I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. Yeah, we're all believers. What do you mean you believe in the Second Amendment? I believe the Second Amendment exists. I can see it right in front of me. It's in the Constitution. And I'm not saying you should deny the existence of the Second Amendment or pass laws that breach the spirit of the Second Amendment as it was conceived of by the people who wrote it and who specifically wrote the words a well-regulated militia when they were writing their crazily ungrammatical sentence. So, yeah, nukes, bazookas, rocket-propelled grenades, what about a backpack nuke? Why can't I have those? It says in the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If you're going to say that I can have a semi-automatic weapon, but I can't have an automatic weapon, in other words, I can have a machine gun-looking thing that... I can pull the trigger as many times as I want as fast as I can and even put a bump stock on it which artificially pulls the trigger as fa- faster than is humanly possible, and that's okay. But then a machine gun where I just hold the trigger down and it's, it releases rounds at about the same rate as my semi-automatic can, a little bit faster, then where is that in the Second Amendment? I don't see that distinction in the Second Amendment, you're already agreeing with me that the Second Amendment has to be interpreted through the light of current arms. So either say that individuals, in fact, mentally handicapped individuals, in fact, mentally handicapped juvenile individuals should be able to buy nuclear weapons, rocket-propelled grenade launchers that can bring down a plane and so on, or shut up and agree with me that the Second Amendment is is a matter of interpretation, and you could just as easily interpret it to say that all it allows you to do is it allows sane adults to own the kinds of firearms that existed when the Second Amendment was written. That would be an equally valid interpretation. There is absolutely nothing in the current debate about guns that has anything to do with the Second Amendment. Because everybody agrees, apart from those who genuinely do believe that children living with psychotic mental illnesses should be able to buy nuclear bombs, everyone agrees that it requires interpretation. So just interpret it differently. However, all of this is not to say that I have no sympathy for gun advocates in all of this. The main argument that the most reasonable sounding Republicans make when tragedies like this take place is one that I actually agree with, which is what possible amendment that you could actually get through Congress would remotely make a difference? It is such a daunting problem in America where there are as many guns as there are people, more I believe by now, that what can you do that would help? I saw Tucker Carlson saying this on Fox News. You name me one thing. He was talking to a, to a Democratic uh, senator or congressperson. You name me one thing that you could get through that you had have any hope of getting through that would have made any difference. This was after the Las Vegas shooting. That would have made any difference at all. And he's right. Here's the problem. The tactic has been, for the past 40 years by the NRA, oppose all change... Two gun laws, unless it's making guns more available, oppose any restrictions whatsoever. So that you make it impossible for people who want to improve the status quo to see any possibility of large-scale change. So you force them into a corner and then and then force them to propose essentially only tiny tweaks at the edges. Because they only want to propose things that they could have conceivably imagine might pass. And they also propose tiny little tweaks like you know banning semi automatic weapons or uh, you know banning bump stocks or uh, tweaking the the mental the mental health conditions of who can buy a gun or closing the gun show loophole these are little things that people who who are in favor of gun safety put forward partly because they're the only things that they can imagine getting through and partly because they want to show how unreasonable the the gun nuts are by not even agreeing to the tiniest form of progress but the the double edged sword there The flip side of that coin, to mix my metaphors, is that then the the gun nuts, I won't call you nuts, the gun advocates, the opponents of any gun safety law, will say, look, you're proposing such small bore things that they wouldn't make a difference. And they're right. They wouldn't make much of a difference. It reminds me a little bit of the debate around climate change. You know, people have gone... I remember 10 years ago when people who who, who opposed any action on climate change would say... Uh, look, we don't know about the science. Uh, we 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 can't be certain w- what's going on now. They don't say that anymore. They usually say, um, "I believe in climate change. I believe that man is probably having probably has something to do with it." But if the prognostications of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the climate scientists are correct then this is such a big deal that what you're proposing at the Paris Climate Accords is going to do barely anything. You're saying that we should reduce the world's temperature by one and a half percent, and yet you're saying that we, it's already gone up by three percent and there are 400 parts per million of carbon and this and that and the ice sheets are melting and all you're saying is that we should do, make these tiny tweaks around the edges? Come on, get serious. But, of course, the people who wanted action on climate change wanted to get serious 30 years ago. And every step of the way, the people who've opposed such action say, I mean, they they throw sand in the gears and make sure that it can't work until you get to such a scenario at which now we do face a crisis or rapidly will, and the tiny tweaks that we want to try to get through in order to begin addressing it seem so small bore that our opponents are actually correct when they say, it's not going to fucking matter. If, as you say, it's as dire as you claim then what you're doing is just fiddling while Rome burns. It's deck chairs on the Titanic. And they're right. They've successfully stalled reform on guns for 40 years. And each time people who want to change the status quo of guns in America propose something, the problem has gotten a little bit worse. There are a few million more guns than there were last time We had a massacre. And then people who seem to be cool with this litany of destruction. And yes, if you oppose all gun safety laws, then you are cool with the litany of destruction. You can't say on the one hand, oh, I I oppose these laws because of freedom and the Second Amendment, but I also hate school shootings. You fucking love school shootings. You love it on some crazy, insane level that I don't understand. You, it it is a pact that you're willing to make. It's just something you're willing to tolerate. Maybe you can find a way to be emotionally inert about it, so you don't actually love it. But on some secret emotional level, in the darkest corner of your soul, you do, you must, because something as abstract as the Second Amendment can't motivate you to turn a blind eye to this horror of living in a country where this constantly, constantly happens unless a tiny little part of you is cool with it. And so when those people say, well, it's too late to fix a problem this big, there are too many, you know, you're closing the the barn door after the horse has already bolted. Yeah, they're right. They're right because they've successfully kicked the can down the road for so long that there's very little we can do. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything. Because we're going to find ourselves next year facing exactly the same problem, but a little bit worse. And the year after that, a little bit worse. And the year after that, a little bit worse. The claim that none of, the, none of the, the laws that are being proposed by Democrats would do much to impact gun violence in America may be true. But like the climate change trick, it's a sort of logical fallacy of saying because we can't do everything, we shouldn't do anything reminds me a bit of saying well we're never going to we're never going to get rid of fires in apartment buildings therefore we shouldn't do anything we shouldn't have fire escapes on the outside because that's just that's just fiddling while Rome burns that's deck chairs on the titanic there are still going to be fires yeah but you do what you can you do what you can when you can so do i think that something can change in the united states of america this is something that people ask me quite a lot in the states because i come from the country where things actually did change No, I don't really... I I am as jaded about this as I am about anything. And there are a few reasons why. Firstly, something that non-Americans need to understand about American gun culture is that there are large swathes of America where guns just aren't seen as being violent things at all. They're a part of... Life. They're a part of everyday life. My in-laws have guns in the home. They live in New Hampshire. They live by a lake. They live a long way away from anywhere. A gun is a tool. It's not a. It's not a violent thing. It's not. It has not. Their gun has as much to do with the school shooting, or the Las Vegas shooting, as I don't know their their hobby drone that they can fly over and take pretty pictures has to do with the SpaceX rocket going to Mars. It's just not this. It's it's only superficially even the same category of thing. Theirs is a tool. It's like a can opener. It comes in handy sometimes. And in parts of America, it's so embedded in the national culture, in the psyche. It's something that, you know, when you have a son, you take him out, and his first day, you teach him how to shoot, and it's it's part of like fishing. It's It's almost like, I try to explain it to Australians, and this is a very imperfect analogy, but imagine if the government tried to control surfing. I mean, imagine the communities in Australia for whom surfing is so fundamental and so ingrained. It's just such a part of the way of life. It's a backdrop to everyday life that you are afraid of the government meddling in it. Why should a bureaucrat have a ledger in which he was going to record the number of days you go surfing and how many waves you caught? That's almost what it feels like to some Americans who go hunting every week and hear that the government wants to have a record of exactly what gun they've got and how they're using it. Now, of course, you could say, well, surfing doesn't hurt anybody and surfing isn't causing carnage. Yeah, I know all that. All of those caveats aside, I'm trying to get you to understand that how interwoven into the very fabric of existence guns are in some parts of the states. So if you did pass a mandatory gun buyback by outlawing large numbers of guns and saying you can only have these categories of guns the way that we did here in Australia, there would be bloodshed implementing that. It would not be like in Australia. Where everyone said, "Oh, sounds like a bit of a good idea, doesn't it?" Probably shouldn't be killing each other. And as an aside, one of the things that the United States has to endure that other countries don't have to endure is being the biggest and therefore sort of most far down the cultural into the into the cultural thicket of any other country. By which I mean, one of the reasons why the laws were able to be changed in Australia in 1996 is, I believe, because Aussies were able to see the American experience and say, "We don't want that." We don't want to go down that path. America has to plow forward and boisterously blunder into a briar patch of its own (laughs) calamitous making in order for other countries in the world to look at it and go, yeah, let's not do that bit. Let's pick this other path. And America finds it harder to do that, partly because it's old as far as new countries go, I mean, we think of Europe as being old, but a lot of Europe has been raised and rebuilt since the Second World War. America's actually pretty old, culturally. And secondly, it's bloody insular. Americans don't have the luxury of looking around the world. They are so big, they're trapped inside of their their own gravitational pull. So the experience of other countries seems somewhat esoteric. It It doesn't really land. Whereas for an Australian, the experience of America is present. We get a lot of American films. We get a lot of American news. We get a lot of American TV shows. It's right in our face, and we see it as a warning. So in some ways, America's sort of size and self-regard makes it difficult for it to step back and make the changes that other countries are able to make. So there's that cultural factor of Americans being attached to their guns. And then there's campaign finance, just the political system and the corruption therein. Corruption's a big word for it, but I think it's appropriate. If you run against guns, and I'm just talking about a simple law change to to introduce safety around guns, for example, mandatory background checks, closing the gun show loophole. The NRA will pour money towards your opponent and have you probably primary. You won't even make it to the general election because someone will outflank you within your own party. So it's not that the NRA spends a lot of money. Actually, if you look into it, they don't. They don't have to. The threat is there. Everybody knows they have to toe the line because they don't want to spend all day, every day on the phone to donors trying to drum up enough money to counteract the negative campaigns that the NRA is going to put out at them if they don't toe the line. Another component that goes into my pessimism about change in the United States is the suspicion of government that Americans have. Both ideologically and practically, Americans fear... Tyranny. So that's the ideological component, right? Americans have a much deeper ingrained sense that at some point in the future, the government's going to turn on us and we're going to have to have our guns to fight back. Now, I don't understand how an old dude on his porch with a semi-automatic weapon is going to fight against the 101st Airborne. I mean, the US military is the most formidable power, that military power that has ever existed anywhere. You're going to make it, you're going to defeat them with your pea shooter? On your, on your ranch in Alabama. I don't I really don't understand this, but I suppose the argument might be that if it's too difficult for the secret service to come door to door because everyone is rising up constantly, then then the population is harder to cow. And I can imagine that. I just think the likelihood that that is going to happen and that there would be no means for, for to to re-seize democratic control is so small that it's not worth enduring having your kids constantly machine gunned down at school. Uh, that is a trade-off. That is a risk. I, w- I will take the risk of tyranny rather than the certainty of living in a bloodbath. And then the second component of American suspicion of government, I think, is just a very practical one that they don't think th- these rules would be implemented very well. They've seen the post office. It sucks. They've seen the DMV where you're going to get your driver's license. It's interminable. The American government doesn't work well. Al Franken had a line that Republicans run on the platform that government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. And there's some truth to that. You know, government doesn't work, government doesn't work, let's get government out of your life. Then they get into power, and they slash government services so that government is annoying, paying taxes is frustrating, the IRS is aggravating, the DMV is pointless, the post office is slow. And you feel like, why would I want to be handing over information about the the things that I own and whether or not I gave a gun to my son to these bureaucrats? They're going to screw it up. And this touches on a bigger suspicion in the American psyche that I think is hard for foreigners to understand, but that I have definitely smelt and come into contact with a lot since being in the States, which I haven't felt elsewhere, which is not a mistrust of government but a mistrust of civilization and its ability to prevail. There is a sense in America that this is a huge gamble, that this is a huge roll of the dice, the American Revolution was, and that it's tenuous and fragile and the whole thing could come crashing down at any moment. And I find that in Australia and in Western Europe and in New Zealand and and Canada, there's a sense that Maybe you could even say a complacent sense that we have basically figured this out, that we understand how to do Western liberal democracy now, and we understand how to keep these things together. And that may be a misguidedly optimistic point of view. One of the reasons why Trump came as a shock, one of the reasons why Brexit came as a shock, one of the reasons why the fear of Le Pen in France is so stark is precisely because there had been certain things that were taken for granted in the West – at least by liberal elites, that suddenly couldn't be taken for granted anymore. Could the whole society fall apart? Could cultures crumble? Could bits of our countries fall off, start fighting each other? Could even civil war be conceivable? These concerns have been much more present at the front of Americans' minds than they have at the front of other people's minds, I believe, in my experience certainly of travelling throughout the Midwest in the States and the West and the South. The idea that there's something tenuous in civilization, that we're on the brink. Donald Trump was alluding to this when he was talking about this American carnage in his inaugural address. The sense that things are just fraying and falling apart and could all, all hell could break loose. And to me, that is such a part of the conversation around guns that nobody ever talks about and that non Americans rarely appreciate that it's worth noting. If you believe that there is a more than trivial probability that you might end up in some dystopian future, you would want to be armed. And that sense just doesn't seem to exist outside of the United States in Western liberal democracies. You know where it probably does exist? Yemen. It probably exists in Yemen. There are lots of other things that we could talk about here, but I, I don't want to bore you. I hope this has been somewhat enlightening. I mean, one of the other things is just that people who really, really care about a, uh, about a, a policy issue are willing to change their votes about it more than people who aren't. And so people who really, really care about the stat- maintaining the status quo on gun safety or the lack of gun safety will actually swing their votes. But, you know, it's their number one issue. For the for gun advocates, this is their number one issue. But for you, is it really? Even in the wake of this tragedy, is it really a number one issue? It's probably number seven in terms of things that would actually swing your vote. So there's just a there's a kind of 80-20 principle at work, a political paradox, where 90% of the population, where well, you keep seeing these opinion polls, 90% of the population wants gun safety laws. Yeah, but that 90% of the population is gonna, isn't going to change their vote. The 10% who opposes gun safety laws, will. So they'll always have more power. It's me again, modern-day Josh, in... March of 2021. I hope that was useful. It's sad that it is still so relevant and it's amazing how little this subject has occupied our minds in the intervening year and a half to two years since I recorded it because of all of the other schmozzles that we've been dealing with. Maybe... Uh, the next four years of a Biden administration will give Americans an opportunity to revisit this, but I somehow doubt it. We'll be back next week with a comfy couch convo and then a real corker of another uncomfortable conversation. See you